Okay, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very, very much, all of you, for turning out on a, on a wet evening, a horrible wet evening, um, and for coming to this talk. Um, this is, this is organised this evening by the Society for Algerian Studies in conjunction with, with the LSE Middle East programme, um, um, who are kind enough to give us their hospitality for holding talks that we we arrange. Uh, my name's John King. I help to run the Society for Algerian Studies. And um, just before I go on slightly further, I will say, please think about taking advantage of this membership form that, that my colleague has, has dished out. For, by being a member of the Algerian Studies, um, you get practically nothing, or almost nothing, because all our, all our lectures are free and open to the general public, and we never have any intention of making them otherwise, so you can come to those anyway. Um, you will get a certain amount of information from our mailing list. If you feel inclined to buy the Journal for North African Studies on an individual subscription, you will get it for £32 a year, instead of the astonishing £99 a year that Taylor and Francis currently charge private individuals, which might be attractive to you. But most importantly, you'll just help the society keep going, tick over, continue to organise these things. And I should say that, that Hugh, who's going to speak tonight, actually founded and set up the Algerian society two decades and rather more ago um, and his intention then was at a time when there was virtually no academic study of Algeria and British universities to provide a forum where, 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 where some sort of lectures and talks and seminars about Algeria could be held um, that situation is not quite so dramatic today there are people in history departments and politics departments in the UK studying Algeria so it's not quite such a drastic lack as it used to be, but nonetheless, we think we we think we fulfil a function, keeping Algeria in particular, and I suppose one could say, uh, to an extent, the Maghreb in general, in in the focus of a academic attention in the United Kingdom. So uh, do think about it, do join. It's not much for a student, as you can see, if you happen to be a student, and. Um, and we'll try and keep you informed about what we do, and we promise to go on doing it. Um, okay, um, Hugh is going to talk. Uh, after that, there'll be questions and answers. Uh, please make sure your phones are silent. Um, should you feel the indomitable urge to tweet about the meeting, the hashtag is LSE Roberts, all one word. Um, um, Hugh, I should say, is, um, as well as being the founder of the society, he's the Edward Keller Professor of North African and Middle Eastern History at Tufts University. And before he, he's done many, many things in his career, but before that, he was the founding director of the International Crisis Group's Middle East program, uh, North Africa program, based in Cairo. Um, and um, he's published a number of books, and tonight he's going to talk in terms of his latest book, Berber Government, The Kabyl Polity in Pre-Colonial Algeria, published by I.B. Tauris, which is on sale here for the absolutely astonishing price of £15, considering it's going to cost you £62 around the corner in Waterstones if you don't buy it now. So, so, so I'd advise you to do that as well. Um, and Hugh, I'll hand over to you. 
Thank you very much, John. And uh, may I first of all say uh, how grateful I am to the Society for Algerian Studies for hosting this event and for the Middle East Centre at LSE. Um, and uh, I have to uh, say how very grateful I am and how much I appreciate the work John has done and Zineb Lalouin uh, and Dermot Murphy, the, the members of the Society's committee. I think it's really a, a great achievement that the Society still exists uh, 22 years and more after it was set up. Uh, and uh, I've been living abroad for the last, uh, I forget how many it is, 15 years, 14 years, uh, and uh, it's a source of enormous uh, uh, satisfaction to me that the society is still going, and it's uh, down to John and Zineb and, and Dermot uh, and Bill Sinton uh, for, for uh, ensuring that it's still going strong. Um, <clears throat> um, I gather I have 40 minutes which is a, roughly one minute for each of the years I've spent thinking about this subject and uh, producing this book. Um, I understand that my function is not, of course, to tell you all about the book. That would obviate the imperative necessity of your buying it. Uh, I have to engage in a kind of intellectual flirtation with you, I think, uh, tease you a little, tell you something about the book, but not too much. Uh, since I'm thoroughly jet-lagged, having uh, only recently arrived from Boston, I may not display the fine sense of judgment in this matter that the occasion calls for. However, let me uh, nonetheless indulge my own uh, urge to tell you something about the book, and I'll try to stop myself in time before I've told you too much. Um, the book really falls into two parts, uh, uh, and in a sense consists of two uh, distinct arguments. The first argument is about the nature of what I call the cabiel polity, which is my way of translating what uh, might in French be called la cité cabiel. Uh, and the term cité is used by the greatest of the 19th century French ethnologists, Emile Masqueray, in his uh, study of cabiel and also Shawier and Mazabi political organization. Um, and the first part of the book is really an exercise in what one could call historical anthropology, or oh, historical political anthropology. It's bringing history into the uh, elucidation of issues that, in my view, a historical anthropology has not really satisfactorily explained. And I'm basically arguing for the need for history uh, to supplement anthropological approaches in order to grasp uh, the truth of the matter. And this part of the book is a reconstruction uh, of uh, cabiel political organization as this existed, as I understand it, at the moment of the French conquest, uh, which in Kabylia, uh, certainly in, for greater Kabylia, occurred in 1857, that's to say 27 years after the French conquest of Algeria got underway with the uh, invasion and the uh, assault on uh, Algiers itself. Uh, and this is um, uh, an argument, therefore, that looks at a number of different elements of the historical reality of Kabyle society. Um, a key element in the argument is the discussion of what uh, of the nature of village organization in Kabylia. And the, the key term in the, in the Kabyle political vocabulary is thadarth. Uh, and I uh, argue that um, we need to go much deeper than writers and observers have gone in order to understand the logics of the Kabyle village or, or Thadar. That's the point I'll come back to 
Uh, and in particular, in, in discussing the forms of settlement in Kabylia, I look at variations, something that I think has been almost entirely ignored, the variations in the forms of settlement uh, in Kabyle society, uh, and uh, focus uh, in the, the argument arrives at a, uh, a proposition that amongst a particular element of the population in Greater Kabylia, known as the Igawawan, the population of the High Jurjura Mountains, uh, who are in important respects distinct from the rest of the Kabyle population, that this uh, element of distinction is closely connected with the pe- peculiarity of the Thadarth amongst the Yigawawan. And this is a point that I believe no one has previously made, uh, and it's a part of the argument. I will go into that a little um, more uh, thoroughly in a moment. The second crucial issue is the issue of law, and uh, I uh, argue that this is a matter also uh, that uh, has required uh, fresh thinking, um, and uh, in part because of the presence within the literature of a number of mutually uh, mutually exclusive views of this, Uh, in other words, a controversy that has never been fully resolved. Uh, And the uh, third uh, set of issues are the the issues relating specifically to political organization, uh, the character of the Thajmath, uh, which is the the, the Kabyle form of the the Arabic word jama'ah, meaning the assembly, uh, primarily of the village, but also uh, historically existing or or occurring, um, being held at other levels on a more occasional basis, particularly at the level of the arsh, that's to say the uh, community of a number of villages falling, uh, forming a, a politically sovereign uh, entity. Uh, and in connection with the um, elucidation of the, the assembly, the Thajmath in, in Kabyle political organization, I devote a lot of attention to an issue that in my view has never been fully understood or explained, the role of uh, what are known as Svuf. Svuf is uh, the um, plural of Saf, or pronounced sometimes Seth in Kabylia, which is in fact an Arabic word, um, meaning array or row or alignment, and it's the term used to refer to political divisions, political alliances, or um, uh, you could call them, as the 19th century French authors did call them, political parties. These are, in a sense, rudimentary political parties. And an important element of my argument is that uh, where uh, a great deal of the writing on uh, Berber political organization has completely failed, in my view, to explain and and indeed to understand and to explain uh, this this has been a major lacuna and unresolved problem in the study of Kabylia, and my book has the ambition to grasp this nettle and get to the bottom of what these things were and how they operated uh, and why they mattered. Um, the second half of the book is really just straightforward history and you could say it's political history but it's uh, political history that encompasses the religious and the economic uh, um, and the uh, in part because um, Kabyle society at this stage in its history and at this stage in its development uh, the political was not clearly separated from the religious Uh, The political was not separated from the social or the economic. But uh, my view here is that the the political is primary. And so the second half of a book is political history. And it's oriented by the concern to explain 
the Kabyle polity as uh, presented in the first half of the book. Um, And um, uh, a key feature of the explanation I offer is that it brings the Ottoman Regency into the discussion. Uh, Most of the uh, academic discussion of of, uh, Kabylia, of the Kabyle, if you like, uh, example of Berber political organization, entirely abstracts that discussion from the historical context of Ottoman Algeria. The Ottoman Regency lasted for over 300 years. Kabylia is not a remote region. Uh, It's not uh, a region or a society existing a long way away from the center of Ottoman power. Kabylia is just down the road from Algiers. Of course, distances are much shorter than they used to be. Uh, If you drive out of Algiers today, you're in Kabylia within an hour. Uh, 150 years ago, it it might take you a day or two. Uh, But all things are relative. The fact is that Kabylia is close to Algiers, and there's evidence that there was a significant Kabyle element of the population uh, of uh, Algiers from early on in the Ottoman era, Uh, and that there was an interaction between the regency, between the uh, population and economy of Algiers itself, but between the the authorities of the regency and uh, the uh, political leaderships in Kabylia from early on, and this interaction was intense and multifaceted, and therefore, in my view, it is absolutely indispensable to understand that evolving relationship in order to understand how the political organization that the French looked at, observed in the 1850s, came into being. And in bringing uh, the Ottomans into this story, bringing history into this story, I am, of course, offering an alternative to the original French view that was a kind of ahistorical, one might, I think, well say, a racial theory uh, of Berber organization. The Kabyles had their remarkable organization, which the French observers were inclined to admire, and if not indeed marvel at, uh, seeing in it uh, aspects of a kind of republican Uh, uh, Republican principles uh, in certain respects I don't think they were hallucinating on that Uh, there's aspects of the original French view that I'm inclined to endorse the problem is that it got muddled up with all kinds of uh, aspects of the French view that uh, were fantasies or hallucinations and one of those hallucinations was that the Kabyles were not really Muslim Uh, I consider that certainly whatever they may be now in the 1850s, they certainly were Muslim, uh, and that the French were hallucinating in thinking that uh, the Kabyles were were, uh, were anti-clerical or secular in the way that uh, all good French men and women are. Um, but they were also hallucinating in supposing that um, this admirable form of political organization was uh, something that had always existed and could be explained, therefore, in terms of la génie berbère, uh, in terms of the Berber racial genius. This is, of course... Uh, an explanation that um, ignores history, and when one brings history in, that racial theory disintegrates, in my view. So, let me... Uh, one other point is that I argue in the second half of the book that what the French were looking at in 1857 and the years thereafter, far from being something that it had existed for centuries and centuries and centuries, if not millennia, had actually achieved the form that they were observing very recently and that it was actually something that became perfected uh, in a course of uh, very uh, acute conflicts nothing more than a century earlier. And so an important part of the second half of the book is uh, really quite a detailed examination of what was going on 
uh, in the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, okay. Um, perhaps I should stop there uh, and leave you all to buy the book, but um, I will go into this into a little bit more detail. Um, one thing this book does is um, belatedly div- deliver on a promise, a promise I made, uh, I think, originally in 1991, when I gave a lecture to our sister society. I don't know whether the Moroccan society still exists, but uh, I gave a lecture to it in December 91 on the theme of uh, perspectives on Berber politics. And C'est I, caduc, I'm afraid. C'est caduc. <laughs> All good things come to an end. Um, and uh, I argued then that there were two perspectives in the modern European or modern Western literature on Berber politics. There was the perspective that had achieved its most brilliant expression in the work of the late Ernest Gellner uh, in his uh, uh, development of an exposition of what, I, of what one we can call the segmentarity theory of Berber politics that basically is a sociological theory that uh, basically says uh, order is maintained in Berber society through the balance and opposition of kinship groups that uh, the population consists of tribes that are subdivided. This is where the word segment comes in, or segmented, rather like an orange is segmented, into a number of clans. Each clan is segmented into a number of lineages, etc., etc. They're all roughly equal in size and weight and therefore can balance each other. So there's a kind of equilibrium theory of order. Uh, and this is necessary because the society exists up in the mountains beyond the reach of the central power, the Mahsan in the case of Morocco, the Sultanate, um, and lacks any specialist order-maintaining mechanisms of its own. This is Gellner's theory, and therefore um, it's thrown back onto, if you like, its sociology, its social structure, which is a kinship structure. Uh, but fortunately, this uh, generates a balance and opposition uh, logic uh, or mechanism which succeeds in maintaining order, and this mechanism is lubricated by the mediating functions of religious specialists, the, the, the Marabtin, or in, in Morocco as they're known, the Igoraman. And this is, in my view, a very sociological theory of, of politics. Uh, and its crucial premise is that the society in question has no political institutions. It is totally devoid of them. And this is where I parted company with Ernest Gellner, having learned a great deal from him. Uh, as a result of discoveries I made in Kabylia doing field work there, as I said earlier, 40 years ago. (laughs) I can't believe the time has gone so fast, but there we are. Um, I found myself doing research uh, in the Jojura Mountains, and I found that uh, Kabyle society most definitely had, and still has, uh, but certainly had then, institutions that were clearly long established. It had the village assembly, the Thajmath. It still had, as I found in the mountains, uh, sufuf. It had a, a panoply of, if you like, secondary institutions that were what made the primary ones function. And I argued in this lecture to the Moroccan Society in 1991 that, in fact, far from the history of ideas about the Berbers being one continuous story, a linear development of, towards ever-increasing sophistication culminating in Ernest Gellner, uh, we actually have two quite different visions of Berber politics in the literature, and that the 19th century vision of the French ethnologists in Algeria, Hanaton Le Tourneur, Émile Mascaré, and their successor in Morocco, Robert Montagne, who was unquestionably in the line of descent from from, uh, the Algerian uh, 19th century ethnologists, it's quite clear. They look at Berber politics in terms of the Jamal, the Thajmath, in terms of political institutions, and they say so. 
Uh, they're not, of course, oblivious to the fact that uh, kinship is an important element of the society, but they do not reduce politics to social structure. They are mindful of and focus on the role of institutions. And from this point of view, what Ernest Gellner did, and I think in one way you could say he was being very modest, was to, in a way, understate the originality of what he did. He kind of burst into a realm of discourse previously monopolized by the French, brings in a radically different theory, and very modestly suggests that this is just a development of earlier French ideas, when in my view it wasn't at all. It was a radical departure from them. So we have these two traditions or perspectives. I call the original one the historical institutional, or the institutional historical perspective, um, and the segmentarity theory pioneered by Gellner, following the work of Evans Pritchard uh, on the Bedouin of Cyrenaica and so on, as the sociological, structural, structural sociological perspective. And my view is that uh, one cannot understand Kabyle history, Kabylia today, or what Kabylia was 150 years ago, in terms of the structural sociological vision pioneered by Gellner in the very different context of the central hiatus of Morocco. Kabylia is a very different society from the society predominantly of transhuman uh, sheep herders and goat herders of the central hiatus. Um, and uh, it, it's different context, it's different relationship to the central power, uh, it's different economic life uh, have actually led it to having a very different political tradition. And uh, the book situates itself, in other words, in the tradition of the 19th century institutional historical perspective and argues that this perspective was in a way thrown over, abandoned, uh, in the wake of Gellner's brilliant uh, promotion of this rival, but that it shouldn't have been abandoned. And the book, in a way, seeks to revive this earlier perspective by resolving the problems in it that the 19th century theorists were unable to resolve. And the, in my view, the two most important problems uh, that the 19th century theorists were unable to deal with was, one, the problem of the Sufuf, as I mentioned earlier, the actual logic of political competition within uh, the Fajmath, within village society, and the society of the Arsh, the larger units, and the other problem, of course, they stumbled over and got wrong or didn't manage to get right at any way, was the question of the relationship of politics to religion. There was this tendency to downplay uh, religion or even write it out of the picture altogether and hallucinate uh, Kabyles into being good trans-Mediterranean Auvergnat, full of anti-clerical uh, first principles. All this, of course, was wishful thinking uh, and completely untrue. Uh, and uh, this uh, problem of fantasizing the Kabyles into being non-Muslims at this juncture in their history, as I say, whatever they may have since become, is another issue which I won't get to go into tonight, uh, is clearly linked to the question of law and uh, is one of the reasons why the issue of understanding law in the context of pre-colonial Kabylia has also remained an unresolved problem. Okay. Um, now... I suggest, perhaps I don't need to ex uh, explain every, every bullet point, but uh, I consider this matters uh, for understanding contemporary Algeria because, as, as some of you may know, if you've read, read my stuff on uh, contemporary Algeria, I've been arguing for a long time that um, the much uh, bemoaned opacity of Algerian politics is in part a function of the fact that uh, onlookers uh, don't really have the right glasses 
uh, to understand Algerian politics. It's a, pro- a big problem of opacity is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, and that, uh, the biggest element of that is simply outsiders' ignorance of Algeria's own political traditions. Uh, and that uh, if we really want to be able to get to a point where we can, broadly speaking, understand what's going on in Algeria, um, we need to understand the continued salience of Algeria's traditions. And my argument in respect of Kabylia is that not that Kabylia is the sole source of Algeria's political traditions, but it is one source and an important one. Uh, Kabyles were participants in the setting up of the Ottoman Regency in the 16th century. And of course, as I'm sure most, if not all of you know, Kabyles played a major role in the national movement and in the War of Liberation. They were among the most important artisans of the Algerian state, even if a lot of them ended up disliking what they helped create. Um, So Kabylia is not marginal. It's actually fairly central to Algerian history. Um, sometimes I think the Kabyles have an exaggerated sense of how central their region is and uh, the tendency perhaps to downplay wrongly the importance of the Constantinois and of uh, the Orani, uh, not to mention the, the other parts of the Algeria, but they are certainly a big part of the story. And therefore, understanding the Kabyle tradition uh, is a contribution to understanding the role of tradition in Algerian politics uh, and uh, therefore dispelling the opacity that bedevils our attempts to follow it. Um, okay, let me uh, move on. Um, I think I've, um, I've actually already covered all that. For those of you who are unfamiliar, and I perhaps ought to make some allowance for, for non-Algerians and non-specialists, this is uh, where Kabylia is, and as you can see, it's just down the road from Algeria. Um, you can see roughly where the Jura Mountains are. They are the highest part of the region, and they are the home of the, this p- particular element I referred to, the Igawal, and this is looking, I don't know, this doesn't seem to come up very well, but we're looking south across Greater Kabylia with um, the Igawal, and to the left of the picture, um, this is on the left of the picture, we have the, the first villages of a very important confederation called the Aitherathen, and they are the northern Igawal, and Igawal is a term that is defined in different ways by different authors, but in my view, the Aitherathen uh, are among the Igawawan element of the society. Um, so this is just um, this is a map that uh, is using the term Igawawan in a more restricted sense. But in my view, uh, in terms of the sociology of Kabylia, we could say that <coughs> uh, the Aitherathen, Aitfrausen, Aitjahia uh, are all, in a sense, uh, part of the Igawawan grouping in, in a more extended sense. Uh, and what this element of the population has in common, these pictures are really aren't going to succeed, are they? Do they look as bad at the back as they, they look all right from the back? Really? Oh, really? Okay, well, this is what the Igawan district looks like. You have the Jojura Mountains running r- roughly west to east and then curving around to the northeast in a crescent, and a series of parallel ridges running north from the main spine, and these ridges are inhabited by the Igawan and... Uh, um, the, this is the most densely settled part of the North African countryside outside the Nile Delta. The population density of Kabylia is really quite staggering, and it's even more staggering today than it was when I first went there. Um, and uh, this is a very different society from the Central High Atlas, where you have low population density. Um, uh, and there is an enigma here. What has permitted this society, to, this region, to sustain such a high population density? And the answer is that 
uh, in, uh, to a considerable extent. It's the extraordinary development of um, intensive craft manufacture uh, that permitted the society uh, unable to sustain itself through agriculture. Uh, agriculture, of course, was part of its portfolio of activity, but it was the uh, commercial craft manufacture for the market, uh, the fact that Kabylia exported its artisanal output uh, that enabled it to uh, sustain uh, a very uh, extraordinary population density. And this only uh, could happen because of the perfection of political arrangements. Uh, a remarkable economy came into existence and a remarkable polity came into existence in order to constitute the necessary framework for that economy. And that's an important theme of the book. Um, okay. Um, these are more Igawaon on their ridges. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I really... I'm doubtful that, the, that you can see anything here, but you claim to be able to. Anyway, these are just sort of images of uh, the central Hyatus. Uh, sorry, the central Hyatus. Uh, now, let me just say something. I have, what, another 15 minutes or so? Thereabouts. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, let me just say something about the village, because this is an element of the book that uh, is... Of course, there's always a danger writing about Kabilia that you're recycling other people's, uh, what has already been said. <coughs> this is a sort of trail that many, many boots have tramped along, uh, and it's become rather muddled. Uh, and one element, uh, not the only element, in the argument of the book uh, that is novel is my argument that um, we need to take account of the variation in settlement patterns in Kabilia in order to understand elements of the dynamics of Kabil history and society. Um, and if we look at this table, I'm basically arguing that there are three different forms of settlement pattern in Kabylia. There are the small villages that are consisting normally, this is western northwest Kabylia, you'll see that uh, the average size of the small village, of the Thidar, uh, in the northwest of Kabylia was 118 inhabitants. This is as of a, the 1860s. This is from the data provided by the 19th century uh, author Sanaton Latorna. These were very small um, uh, units of settlement, and they were kinship groups. Unquestionably, uh, in these small villages in the northwest, uh, the village was coterminous with a lineage. If we look at the central and eastern Jurjur and the Akfadu district, we see that the average size of the population of a, of a Thadarth was four times as big. Not 471 as opposed to 118. We're looking at very, very much bigger units of, 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 of residents. So a, a village is different in the Jura. It's immeasurably bigger. It is not simply one lineage. It is actually usually four or five clans and sometimes as many as 20 lineages, if not more. And the point I'm making here uh, is that the Igawawan Thadat, the big village of the Jura, uh, and in the 1860s, Hanaton Latorna found over 20 villages that had 1,000 inhabitants. And that probably was an underestimate. These are not kinship groups. These are, not, uh, these are villages that are not constituted by uh, a population united by ties of kinship. Kinship, therefore, is not the premise uh, of political unity. Uh, the village may call itself, as its name, the Sons of X. More often than not, it will call itself uh, by a topographical term, the fountain of the wild, of the, of the wild figs, uh, or the, uh, 
uh, all kinds of different uh, topographical terms are, are used just as often, if not more often, than, uh, than uh, genealogical terms. Uh, but the point is that kinship is not the uh, unifying principle of the village. Some other principle is. Uh, and this is where political organization is, in fact, the explanation uh, of the ability of the population to live in such uh, villages that are not uh, uh, where um, unity and harmony is not predicated on kinship. Um, okay, we have this intermediate element, this category that is actually englobes the greater part of Kabylia, where a quite different kind of settlement was the norm. Neither the small thadarth of 118 people or the big one of, on average, 500 or if not more people, but where the, the tradition was a number of small uh, settlements constituting a larger settlement by associating with each other, having a single assembly uh, as their unifying uh, governing body. And this was known as a tufik, tufik meaning association in this context. And in, the sec in this case of the tufik, uh, once again, the overall unit is not a kinship group. The subunits are kinship groups, but the, the political unit as such um, embodied in the, uh, the uh, membership of a common assembly, representation of a common assembly, is not a kinship unit. And so we're looking at uh, a population, very dense population, the bulk of which, as of the uh, 18, middle of the 19th century, uh, is, is living in units that are not kinship groups, where, in other words, kinship has been transcended by a different principle. Uh, and that is a, a very important element uh, of the, if you like, the foundation of the argument of the book. Um, what else can I tell you? Now, if you insist that you can actually see this picture quite well, it'll give you some idea of the density of population. These are Igawan villages. These are villages of the Aethu Akash and the Aethiani. The Aethiani on the, uh, on the horizon. Uh, the Aethu Akash and the Aethu Wasif uh, along this ridge here, phenomenal density of population. These days it's hard to tell where one village ends and the next one begins. Um, and these are classic Igawan tribes. Um, okay. Uh, I want to say something about how I got onto this line of thought. I, when I first went to Algeria in 1972, the last thing I wanted to do was spend my time looking at Berbers. As, as a good British socialist, I thought, well, that's a terribly neo-colonial thing to be looking at. Uh, what I'm interested in is development. And, of course, Algeria at that point was widely seen, with some reason, as a model of a developing third world country. Um, there was a good deal of ink spilled on the Algerian model. And not without reason. Uh, and I lived there at one point, and I taught there. And what I was interested in was uh, what on earth is Algerian socialism about? Um, what, what makes it tick? Is it complete, uh, completely false? Is there something in it? What's going on? And my ambition in pursuing those questions was to actually find out what was going on on the ground. I didn't want to spend my time listening to intellectuals and theorists and reading government uh, uh, legislation and all that sort of thing. I actually I wanted to do field work, and I started working on the agrarian reform, which was the big issue in the early 1970s, and did this for three years until I decided that actually I'd spent three years bashing my head against a brick wall uh, in the mistaken belief that I would sooner or later find the Algerian who would uh, open the door for me and, uh, and authorize me to do field work. 
And when I finally had a, a, a meeting with, uh, through the inter, intervention on my behalf of distinguished Algerians, I finally was able to meet President Boumediene's top advisor for the agrarian reform, who was extremely charming. Uh, he, he received me at the presidency and said, look, uh, Ramadan has just begun. This isn't actually the ideal moment. Uh, we can't have a cup of coffee. We can't even have a cigarette. Why don't you come back in a month? So I went back in a month, and that proved to be decisive for me because in the meantime, quite unexpectedly, I'd been invited to a village in the Hyjurjura. Uh, and this village uh, really was where my work on Kabylia really began. And this village is a village called Athwadha. And it's a village high up in the mountains. Uh, it's about as remote a village in Kabylia as you can find. And it's a very remarkable village because not only is it remote and therefore relatively at that time unevolved, one saw many long-standing traditions still functioning, uh, the tradition of the Thajmath, of the village, regular, regular meetings of the, uh, of the uh, village assembly, uh, all kinds of traditions, uh, very vigorous and, and in good shape. This was also a village that, uh, where people felt able to talk openly about certain things, in part because it's a village with an extremely uh, remarkable war record. It was a village that was a major center of the National Liberation Army of the revolution in Kabylia. So the people of Aithwavan, they had a kind of robust attitude to the regime, and at least chez uh, eux, in their own home, in their own village, uh, they were quite prepared to talk about things that uh, in the towns where I spent quite a lot of my time, nobody would be willing to talk about for fear of being, uh, for fear of the walls that have ears and so on. Uh, and this is where I found people of my age willing to talk to me about local politics. And it just so happened that at that time, the summer of 1975, there had been local elections, uh, and in the commune that this village belonged to, the new mayor came from Aithwavan. And therefore, all the young men in Aithwavan had a lot to say about this, for or against, depending on their factional allegiances, depending, in other words, on which suf they belonged to. And it was there that I found out that the sufuf were still alive, still functioned, if in a different context from the pre-colonial period, and I found that the Thajmath functioned as a political institution, that the decisions of the village in relation to local elections, who are we going to vote for, this was all discussed and decided by the village assembly uh, after a debate had taken place. Uh, in other words, it was there that I discovered that Kabylian political institutions existed and functioned, uh, and I began to think along non-Gelnerian lines in understanding Kabyl politics. And uh, I went back there the following year, and I had a number of adventures because at this time Algeria was undergoing the uh, crisis uh, the, over the Western Sahara. The regime had, uh, in response to this situation, had encouraged the formation of vigilance committees in every village. Every village in Kabylia had a comité de vigilance. There was a certain amount of paranoia, in other words, in the air. And my presence in the village was not to the liking of everybody. Uh, and uh, since I was doing this... Uh, on the basis of simply visiting friends and listening to their what it, whatever it was they wanted to talk about. I was doing this, in other words, without any authorization whatsoever. Um, the question arose, would I be able to do this for very much longer, or would I, in fact, sooner or later get arrested and be deported? And things came to a head where, uh, at one point, while I was staying there, there was a very serious uh, prospect of the gendarmerie paying a call on my hosts, and uh, confiscating all my notebooks. And so uh, the prospect of my eventually writing a book on this subject was 
preserved by the quick thinking of my host mother, who gathered all my notebooks, which were full of extremely compromising detail on local politics, put them in a plastic bag, and took them down to the garden and buried them under the potatoes and the cabbages uh, for the rest of my stay, uh, tactfully remembering to dig them out again when I finally left. Uh, and uh, so I had a, um, an exciting time of it, and I um, remain, remain enormously grateful to the villagers of Aithwavan, their tolerance of my presence, the support of my host family, but also I can't help thinking the Algerian authorities must have been vaguely aware of what I was up to, and they didn't interfere with me, so I'm, I feel I want to be grateful to them as well. That's where I basically began to have this different view from the segmentarity theory. Uh, and you can see that this is the high Jojura, that is actually the valley, the village at Waban is here, and it was a bastion of the revolution. It was one of the very few villages where the legendary Colonel Amirouche uh, was willing to spend the night. He felt comfortable there. He felt safe there. Uh, there. There's another view of it. So it's a remarkable village, and I think that I had an incredible stroke of luck in meeting young men of my own age from there and being invited by them uh, back to that village. Um, and that is actually where I stayed in the village, the uh, the, the, the neighbourhood known as Thakrish Netwada, the, the quarter of the of the people lower down the valley, or as they like to call themselves, the people of the panorama, which is a more positive way of putting it. Okay, um, <clears throat> so this is what a Thajmat looks like. It's an institution. One of the reasons why Ernest Gellner was dismissive of political institution among, among the Berbers is that in the central high atlas. When uh, a particular group wanted to have a council, they would, they would meet, but it, they would meet in the open air. They had no building or anything. Uh, in Kabylia, the Thajmath usually is a building. It's open at both ends, uh, and inside, it's rather like the House of Commons. You have a row of seats on one side and a row of seats on the other side, and the, the Sufuf are aligned, are arrayed, opposite each other, and debate, therefore, uh, tends to be uh, binary. The, the political division is, a, the, the, the logic of the Jabar is a binary logic. Uh, there are only ever, there are sometimes more than two sfuf in a village, but at the next level up, the arsh, there's only ever two. Uh, the logic is a binary logic. And uh, this is where, this is a Fajmath at a very well-known village, Athlasan, of the Aitiani. Um I don't know whether you can see that at all, but that's that's the inside of the Thajmath. Uh, and can you actually see the people sitting there? No. It's, uh, <coughs> no, it doesn't work. I'm sorry about this. Anyway, um, this is the picture from which the cover of my book is taken, showing an, a meeting of a plenary session uh, of an assembly in the open air. Uh, the, uh, the thing is quite complicated in many cases, and particularly at Athwavan, you would have the limited council that meets every week, and still meets every week to this day, uh, discussing routine affairs, hearing reports, um, considering litigation, re resolving disputes and so on, or making a decision about this or that village matter. And then when a need for it arises, calling a plenary session known as the Avara uh, that is attended by all adult males. And this is uh, an Avara. Uh, and as you can see, uh, all the men are sitting around. There are little boys in the front of the picture learning uh, what manhood consists of by listening to their elders. They don't, of course, speak, but they listen uh, to their elders. And there is a Kabyle man of honor in his burnous <coughs> addressing his peers. 
And this is what was the norm and hasn't yet completely disappeared from the region. Um, I think that I have now exhausted my uh, 40 minutes and uh, not covered all the ground I meant, it, meant to cover. Uh, perhaps the, com- the uh, subsequent conversation can... If can... you want to wrap up, I think we can give you another five. You can give me another five. If you want to run quickly over closing points. I will... Having said something about the Thajmath and the Sufuf, I'll leave that there. I think one thing I should mention is the question of law. Um, because... I, and uh, to, to demonstrate why uh, I felt it necessary to uh, make my contribution to that debate... The French 19th century view tended to counterpose Berber customary law to uh, Islamic law, to the Sharia. Uh, and um, they made a big thing of what they called urf as custom or customary law and saw this as a contradiction. And it was a major premise of the view that the Kabyles and more generally Berbers, there was a tendency to generalize from the Kabyle case once they had misunderstood it, um, <clears throat> and to suggest that uh, the Berbers uh, were not really Muslims or only very superficially because uh, they uh, didn't accept the Sharia and had their own customary law. Now, the fact of the matter is that the Sharia are not the sole source of law for the most um, pious and uh, rigorous Muslims. There's nothing unusual in the Muslim countries for law also to be derived from custom. Customary law, urfi law, is a category of law in countries where there isn't a single Berber. So there's a category of a law in Egypt. There's nothing unusual about this. The French were um, getting the wrong end of the stick and running a very long way, the wrong way, uh, with this stick. And uh, urfi law is something that is found in the non-Berber areas of Algeria, to look no further. So there was this major mistake right at the outset. Um, the second mistake was uh, given that the laws that uh, govern uh, Kabyle village were known locally as the Qanun. Uh, there was the, uh, another conclusion that uh, French 19th century writers uh, jumped to was that Qanun came from the Latin canon and was evidence of the mysterious survival over uh, one and a half millennia of traditions that originated in, in early Christianity during the Roman period or the Byzantine period or what have you. And what this overlooked was the fact that Kanun law is a feature of Ottoman law, uh, and Kanun, therefore, is a, a, a term uh, in uh, frequent use in the Ottoman legal uh, practice and system, and that if the Kabyles started referring to their own uh, village local bylaws uh, as articles of a Kanun, they were almost certainly doing this in imitation of Ottoman practice rather than uh, because they had managed the feat of vaguely remembering uh, Christian practice of 1500 years earlier uh, when uh, most of Kab- not much of Kabylia was actually inhabited. So there's those sort of um, obvious problems. A more interesting and more recent problem is the problem uh, created by Pierre Bourdieu uh, in his argument that in reality the Kabyles have only one code, they only know uh, one code, the code of honour. And he has, in my view, introduced a great deal of confusion into the discussion of the question of law by uh, 
um, suggesting that uh, the the kanun, the existence of which he is aware of and acknowledges, can in effect be dismissed and ignored as having no real substance in in reality. In reality is a term that frequently crops up in Bourdieu. There are the various things that don't exist in reality, and then there are the things that do exist in reality, and this is all a rather arbitrary way of privileging the things he wants to privilege. And so, basically, in his version of the uh, logic of Kabyle society, honor is, is everything. Honor is all. I regard this as a, as a fantasy, another fantasy. Uh, and uh, I think that, in fact, what he does is to uh, distract us from the uh, much more interesting hypothesis. It's the hypothesis I put forward in my book and, and seek to illustrate that the question of law in Kabyle society in the pre-colonial period was a problem, and that it was a problem precisely because there was tension between two different sets of principles, one of them being the code of honor, the need of every lineage, of every family, to uh, preserve its honor, uh, to defend itself, and if necessary, to exact revenge against slights, including uh, the killing, uh, the, uh, the uh, vengeance for... Uh, deaths incurred in vendettas. That is, of course, an antisocial principle. It's a principle necessary to the uh, integrity and survival of families and their self-respect, but it's conducive to disorder. And the, the need of the village, particularly amongst the Igawawan, to preserve order. And what we find, in my view, is precisely a conflict and a tension between uh, these two different codes. Both existed in reality. And the problem of resolving the tension between them was one of the main items in the business of the Jamaah, the Thajmath of a Kabyle village. And it managed it. And one of the things I do in my book is to explain how it managed this compromise. And I think that uh, it's a pity that Bourdieu could only see one term of the, ten- of, of the, uh, the two. Because it seems to me that one of the most remarkable aspects of, of Kabyle politics in the pre-colonial period, and it's an element that hasn't totally disappeared, was the, the, the ability that the Kabyle society developed that other societies in the Maghreb didn't develop because they weren't faced with the same problems. The ability they developed to handle conflicts of that kind in their local self-government. Uh, and so, in, in my view, there's an important point that needs to be elucidated about the whole question of law uh, in Kabyle society, and that's uh, something I have sought to do in the book, amongst other things. I've got 30 seconds. Minus, <laughs> minus seven minutes. So um, that's... Uh, I, think, I think I'm going to have to um, leave it there. Uh, the, simply to say uh, that... Yeah, simply to say that regarding the, the second half of the book, <coughs> uh, an important element uh, of the discussion in the second half of the book, following on from the role the Kabyles played in actually the creation of the Ottoman Regency, uh, is the fact that uh, from a great deal of the period following the uh, constitution of the Ottoman Regency, uh, Greater Kabylia was dominated by a dynasty known as the Athol Qadi, uh, also known as the, the kings of Kuku, les rois de Kuku, which is a slight uh, misunderstanding of what they really were. And they had their counterparts in, to the east in uh, La Petite Kabylie, in Lesser Kabylie, the other side of the Soman Valley, in the, um, the rulers of Qala Nathabas. Uh, you had two, if you like, principalities, uh, perhaps the most uh, 
Uh, accurate way of referring to them would be to emirates or to sultanates, but uh, emirate perhaps is a, a more accurate term, uh, where the dynastic principle is actually the dominant organizing uh, political principle at the level of the region. It's not an egalitarian democratic principle at all. It's a dynastic uh, hierarchical principle, uh, which is one of the reasons why the, the idea that Kabyle uh, democratic republics had existed for centuries and centuries is actually inconsistent with the known facts. But what is very interesting about the history of Greater Kabylia is uh, what happens following the end of the Kingdom of Kuku. And uh, an important element of the history that I tell in the second half of the book is the story of how the dynastic principle in the high mountains is finally uh, ended and replaced by a democratic principle. And this happens in the course of the 18th century. Uh, and it's what, in, uh, in my view, perfects Kabyle political organization uh, in time for the French to marvel at it when they come across it uh, in the 1850s. Uh, and that's why I talk about the uh, Kabyle polity as the French saw it, as being something that had actually uh, only come into the form that they, they observed very recently. And that's uh, a measure of how important it is to integrate the history uh, of this issue into the political anthropology of this issue. Without the history, one is liable to misunderstand a great deal. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you very much. We'll have questions and answers through, through me, please, and, and, and hopefully say who you are um, before asking your question. I'm going to cheat, uh, capitalise on the position of sitting here and ask your first question. And, and um, I'm actually going to start at the top of the, the sheet you've just put up on the board, which oh. will sort of enable you to go on, hopefully, um, um, because I'm, I'm interested to know when did the French, um, the, the sort of theorisation that Kabyles were different and in some way more amenable to, um, to cooperation with French colonisation. At what sort of date did that get underway? I ask this because, um, as you know, I did a certain amount of work on it early, earlier 19th century Algeria, sort of um, all the French documents of the, the Abdul Qadir period, and it doesn't really come up there. Mm. It doesn't come mm. up before, before um, 1848. And, right. um, and so when did it take off? Um, did they have any success in recruiting people to come to their side? How did it play into um, the 20th century and, and into Kabyle Arab relations? And, uh, and um, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm probably to ask this from my research at one end and from the other end, the fact that, 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 that around the corner from me there's a, there is an affable Algerian cafe run by two chaps in their 40s, um, um, Said and Abdurrahman, one of whom identifies himself as a Kabila and the other one as an Arab, they speak to each other in French and they say they perceive no difference whatsoever between them. But I feel this is discours to, to some extent. Um, um, and of course, in the middle of this, how did um, you know the, the, the French recruiting people, was this to, to some extent turned upside down and on its head in Kabyles playing a part in the revolution? Yes, uh, the Kabyle, and not just the revolution, but in the national movement from the 1920s onwards, yep. if not earlier, but uh, the role of the Kabyles in the Etoile Nord Africaine, uh, in, uh, in France, in the, in the PPA, the Parti du Peuple Algérien, uh, and for that matter, in the, in the other currents, the uh, Union Démocratique du Manifeste Algérien, the Kabyles were very actively involved in the national movement, 
uh, as well as the, the National Liberation War. So all that, in a way, refuted uh, some of the expectations of the uh, uh, more unrealistic French commentators. Um, the, I think what happened was that, um, the, if you like, the, the Kabyle myth, uh, as it's often quite reasonably called, really takes off from the initial interest in the really quite remarkable forms of political organization that the Kabyles had, which the French start noticing uh, really only in the 1840s uh, and, and 1850s uh, mm-hmm. and, and really uh, are very struck by in the course of the, the campaign to conquer the region definitively in 1857. Uh, it's from there that um, the idea that there are, there's a... There's parallels between Kabyle organization and Republican political principles. And I don't think that was nonsense. Governments in Kabylia was raised publica. It was the affair of the people. Uh, at the time the French are observing Kabyle society, the dynastic principle has gone in the high mountains, uh, incarnated in the dynasty of the Aithel Qadi. They, they are history at that point. They're gone. Um, so government is raised publica. The, uh, the Thajmath of every village is a representative assembly. Uh, every lineage has its tamen, has the man who answers for it, tamen being a Kabyle uh, variation of the Arabic word vamin, meaning caution or uh, guarantor, uh, caution in the French sense, the person who, who vouches for so these are representative assemblies. The French, uh, seeing them as having a kind of republican aspect, were not hallucinating there. Where they start to hallucinate is, A, in thinking that this is exclusively Berber, when in fact Arabic-speaking populations of other mountain districts in Algeria also had the Jamaa. If you, if you uh, look at what exists in the much less abundant literature on uh, the mountains of eastern Algeria, uh, one, one will come find that the society also had... Uh, villages, usually smaller than those of the Igawan, but they had villages and they had, each village had its jama. In other words, the idea of a degree of representative self-government was present in non-Berber populations as well as Berber ones. So the French didn't see that. They wanted, because they were looking for elements of the population that could support the French colonial enterprise, uh, they were looking, they were hoping to find Algerians they could assimilate uh, the idea that uh, uh, was that uh, you, we can assimilate you if you already resemble us in certain important respects. Uh, we therefore have an interest in... Uh, in uh, this is where wishful thinking takes over. Uh, and particularly the idea that um, if they're Republican, they must be uh, virtually uh, anti-clerical. They must be non-Muslims. Uh, all this was um, an, a, a fantasy. I think that uh, it, it is consolidated in the course of the 1860s and 1870s, uh, uh, with um, uh, people getting very enthusiastic uh, and getting carried away uh, with these notions, which, importantly, Hanaton Lotourneur didn't share and didn't endorse. Uh, they're much more, much calmer and realistic about these matters. Um, but uh, the enthusiasts, the Kabilophile, get carried away with these... Uh, Notions. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not going to say more because uh, it's not really what my book is about. May I point out that Ibi Taurus has already published uh, years ago a first-class study of this question by Patricia Lawson, Imperial Identities, which is precisely about uh, how the French developed this myth about the Kabyles in particular and the Berbers in general. 
Um, and I, I can only recommend you all to those of you who want to follow this up to to look at that book. It's recently been re-published uh, by the University of Nebraska Press, I think, um, and uh, is an excellent study of this. Definitely, uh, pardon my gross ignorance uh, on the subject, uh, non-species subject. I just want to find out. But identify yourself, though. Uh, I'm a uh, one night alumni of the college. Uh, name is Rupani. Uh, the I was just wondering when was the Islam introduced in North Africa, and is the Arabic spoken by North African is similar to the main uh, Egyptian variety. And the third is, is that Kabilia, it seems to me from whether it's, this is a corruption or before the corruption, we call it Kabila. It's a, sort of a, a, you see, group of people, you see, filling to the uh, same gene pool or something like that. Uh, the term, the name Kabilia, which is the my Anglicization of la Kabylie, which is the French term, which is derived from the Arabic Kabail, which is the plural of Kabila. Okay, so, and the reason for this is that the people of the towns, uh, Algiers and the other smaller towns, Clemson in, in the west, Nadroma in the west, uh, and so on, uh, Mila and Jijel and so on in the east, they would refer to the people of the mountains as al Kabail, meaning the tribes. Kabila is, of course, the standard word for tribe in, in most Arab countries, not all. And interestingly, it is not actually the term used for tribe in Algeria. Uh, it's a term known to everybody, and they would refer to the mountain populations as al-Qabail, as distinct from the, the Bedouin. Even in India, we use the word Kabila. You do? Yes, do. Um, so there's that aspect. Islam, of course, came to... North Africa, uh, not long after it came, to, I mean, it came to Egypt uh, and then was spread west by uh, um, uh, Oqba ibn Nafi, his, his great drive west in, across uh, Libya, Tunisia, and Algeria to the Atlantic. Um, and that's um, in the, towards the end of the 7th century, um, around 680 of the Christian era, or the common era. And so the Arabiz the Islamization of, of North Africa proceeded really uh, very in a very dynamic fashion, and, and Berber speakers were important elements in, in the process. Although there was also a strong Berber reaction against the Arab uh, the Sunni the Sunni Islam of the Arab conquerors, uh, because as you're probably aware, at the time of the Umayyad Empire, the Umayyad Empire was seen very much as being an empire that deviated from the principles of Islam insofar as it privileged the Arabs. Uh, it was an Arab empire more than, or at least as much as an Islamic one, and therefore provoked reactions. And some of these reactions occurred in the Maghreb, uh, where you find Berbers embracing Islam, but embracing a non-Sunni version of it. And you get Kharijism and Ibadism and so on. But these are all taking us away from my subject, if you don't mind my saying so. Um, I hope that at least answers your main question. Let's go to the gentleman the far back in the green T-shirt. Thank you. Um, thank you for such an interesting talk. My name is Jonathan Harris. Just I'm a, uh, starting off with a PhD in geography at the University of Cambridge, and my subject's the um, the homeland geopolitics of the Berber diaspora, um, mostly in France. 
Um, so I've got a uh, kind of two-fold question. One's that you mentioned that these um, political institutions are still in existence and still functioning. Um, I wondered if you could comment on on uh, ways in which they are still functioning. I'm thinking um, of the recent Mouvement des Arches, um, after the Printemps Noir. And um, also, uh, when I saw the title of your book, Berber Government um, and uh, Caviar Policy in Pre-Colonial Algeria, um, I instantly thought um, this might have political implications for the uh, group seeking the auto-determination or self-determination of, of Kabylia. And I wonder if you could comment on... Um, did I hear you right? For the autonomist current, is that yes. what you meant? Yes, yes. okay. So the, the autonomous current and uh, the mouvement des Arouches. Well, um, the, for those of you, um, the Arouche is, um, is the Arabic plural of the word Arsh, which is actually the term usually translated as tribe in the context of Algeria, interestingly, rather than Kabila. Um, but um, <clears throat> uh, the Berber plural is simply Arash. It's not Arush. Arush is the Arabic but uh, both terms are used. And the point is that, that um, in 2001, there developed in Kabylia a very remarkable, very rapidly constituted uh, protest movement uh, that had a Janus-like name. It had two names. Uh, and one name was the Arush, or Arsh, to use the Kabyle version, uh, which suggested that this was a movement that was tribal in character and backward-looking, traditionalist. The other name was forward-looking, the citizen movement, Le Mouvement Citoyen. Uh, and this was a movement that developed uh, in response to a dreadful series of events, uh, riots uh, suppressed by the gendarmes uh, employing shoot-to-kill tactics in which uh, something like 125, 128, I think it was, uh, young Kabyles were shot down in an utterly uh, unprecedentedly brutal way. That Nothing like this had happened in Kabylia since independence. And... Um, this movement developed as a, a way of... It was a very intelligent thing that happened. Uh, veterans of, of the Kabyle uh, movement, Berber cultural movement um, organized this uh, movement in order to give the angry young men a, an alternative to getting themselves killed by the gendarmes. They, they were engaging in kind of suicidal rioting. And it was their older brothers, if you like, or their fathers... It was people who were in their 40s or even early 50s who set up this movement in order to give the teenagers and guys in their 20s uh, an alternative to getting themselves killed. Uh, and it's why this movement became known as the Arush is a very complicated story, and I can't tell it now, but I can tell you where you can find out that story because I've already told it. And that is in the first report I ever wrote for the International Crisis Group, uh, which was published in June 2003, called... Um, unrest and impasse in Kabylia and it goes into the nature of this movement in great detail and explains uh, why the name the movement acquired this Janus like pair of names actually is a very mystifi mystificatory um, but it's uh, this movement was as I explain in this report uh, structured by Kabyle traditions in particular the tradition of the Jama'ah and that's one of the reasons why it initially uh, exhibited some dynamism but subsequently got into all kinds of difficulties because the tradition of the Jamar is a tradition that is equal to the business of governing a village on the basis of, of routines. 
But uh, running a movement with political ambitions in a novel context, that's not something that the politics of routine local government can necessarily help you with. Uh, so there was a downside to these institutions informing the structuring and uh, behavior of this movement. And that's all really gone into in quite a lot of detail in the ICG report. On the other question, yeah, there's uh, given the failure of the Kabyle political parties uh, that have been legalized in the region since 1989 and the introduction of a new constitution, and they've clearly failed uh, to deal with the region's problems and provide satisfactory political perspectives for the population of the region. There's been a development of a, a kind of radical alternative, which is a movement for autonomy. Um, and you asked me, what is the implications of my analyses for the autonomy movement? Yes. Well, my book, uh, <laughs> my book ends in the 19th century. It doesn't pretend <laughs> to have a, a, a sort of payload uh, um, for contemporary Kabyles wondering what they should do next, what they should try next. Um, uh, what I actually, uh, where I think the analysis of the book will play into contemporary Kabyle debates is more in relation to the question of identity rather than the question of autonomy. Um, I think that um, the, uh, the point here is that uh, I point out that whereas the 19th century French observers were above all impressed by Kabyle political organization, uh, what is seen as the, uh, specifying, the, the identifying specificity of the Kabyles today is their language, is Thamazir, the, the Berber language, uh, and the various cultural <coughs> traditions and, uh, for that matter, inventions vehicled by that language, particularly, of course, in music, not only poetry, and now, in fact, you're getting fiction written in this language and so on. So uh, there's been a shift from the political to the identity and the linguistic, the language, uh, as the sort of uh, focus of the Kabyle self-image. Uh, and there's been a confusion about this because at the same time, a good deal of the energy that has gone into the identity agitation has actually been animated by a democratic aspiration and a democratic critique of the Algerian form of government. Uh, and the connection made between the two is the belief that um, the language, or more generally culture, agitation, is inherently and intrinsically democratic in nature and in implication. And I point out, uh, I permit myself to point out, that in fact uh, events over the last 30 years have not borne out that thesis. The Algerian government has step by step made concessions to the identity demands, up to and including recognizing Thamazirth as a national language, without becoming substantively more democratic at all. Uh, and I suggest uh, that to my readers, whether they want to have, to have this suggested to them or not, that um, the idea that there's something in, intrinsically democratic about the Berber identity is in fact uh, a re. <coughs> Recycling of the 19th century uh, Kabyle myth. And uh, there isn't necessarily a connection. Uh, and that they, they, that it's not accidental that some of the most vigorous uh, advocates of the identity question 
have uh, been very much associated also with uh, the expression of hostility towards Arabophone Algerians uh, and uh, also the militant expression of a secularist vision and a secularist identity. In other words, a hundred years on, elements of the Kabyle myth seems to be actually <laughs> achieving a certain purchase on reality. Um, and that's a, a complicated issue, but it's not one I wish to really go into any further tonight. Dermot. Thank you. Dermot Murphy, Society for Algerian Studies. Um, Hugh, extremely interesting. We'll talk more about that later. Um, my question is, um, what do you think was blinding Pierre Bourdieu to what was in front of him um, why was he contributing to the myth and what if anything would you save from his work let me start with the last, your last question can I, can I put in an interjection before you start Hugh which is a, I think you're an extraordinary courageous man you've, you've challenged the spirit of Ernest Gelder on his home ground and taken Pierre Bourdieu to task heavens who's next <laughs> I think I'll leave it at that um, let me uh, um, mollify whoever needs mollifying um, and moderating my own uh, aggressive theses by saying that I very much admire Bourdieu's article on honor. I think his, his, his essay, Le Sens d'Honneur, the, the Sentiment of Honor, is a beautiful uh, essay and uh, a, a major contribution to the understanding not just of the Kabyles, it's based on his work on Kabylie, but it, it's... Uh, it's valid for the Maghreb in general, I'd have thought, and certainly for Algeria in general. Um, he's not wrong about the importance of and the nature of the, the sentiment of honor. He's wrong in giving it a monopoly uh, in relation to the question of law. That's where he's wrong. Uh, he's claiming too much for it. Um, and, um, but I, I very much admire that essay. Um, I also admire a good deal of his work on other questions. I, for instance, his book, Le Déracinement. I have a great admiration for that book. And, of course, his, the work he did with uh, colleagues, uh, Travailler et Travailleur en Algérie. This is very good sociological work. So I don't want anyone to think that I've got it in for Bourdieu <laughs> as such. <laughs> but I think that he got key elements of Kabylia wrong. He got the honor thing very right. But I think he, in a way, thought that that was all he needed to understand Kabila in general. And why he went wrong about this, in my view, it's in my hypothesis, I can't pretend to have researched this exhaustively. He was researching Kabila during the war. Uh, and a lot of the work he did actually was interviewing Kabyles in the recruitment camps, not in their villages. Quite a lot of the detailed uh, vocabulary of honor and the, 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 the numerous very beautiful terms employed, the phrases that are part of the whole discourse on honor, he was getting from people he was interviewing who had already been uprooted from their villages and, and regrouped by the French army down, uh, down from the mountains. That's one element. And the point is that where he did do work in the villages, these villages are under French occupation. This was the worst possible moment to see the logic of Kabyle self-government. The Jama'a, if it still functioned at all, functioned uh, as um, uh, on French orders. The French army would say, right, you know, uh, announce, make an, uh, fresh announcements to the population. Here is some more do-nots or do's. I mean, it was all under French domination or under the domination of the other side, uh, where the Jama'a would be, in effect, um, uh, 
an emergency jamaa, not consisting of representatives of the lineages in the, 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 the traditional routine, um, but uh, in those villages where the FLN was in control, they would tell the village who their jamaa now was. It would be five sound uh, people with the right politics named by the FLN from the village. They wouldn't be outsiders, but it would be the FLN saying, right, this is your jamaa, and it would be an emergency jamaa of just five men. Uh, and so this was all a situation that was totally exceptional. It was the worst possible moment to, to study Kabyle politics in, in, as normally operative. And I think that he didn't make sufficient allowance for that. Adam. Uh, Adil Hamezi, a DPhil student at St. Anthony's College. Thank you very much for a fascinating um, presentation, Professor Roberts. Um, you referred to rudimentary political parties. I was just wondering whether you could shed light on maybe rudimentary economic institutions of, of sorts, if there were any, and, and how sort of land rights, ownership, um, arboriculture sort of played a role in, in, in the legal framework that you, you referred to. And um, just a sort of very quick second point. Uh, when you refer to equilibrium theory of order and um, sort of order-maintaining mechanisms. Uh, are we referring here in this sort of segmentary through to sort of tribal or clan fusion fission? Is, 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 is that what we're getting at? Yeah, uh, I'm, yes, I'm talking about Gellner's theory uh, that the society is a kin- uh, the social structure is a kinship structure at each level of the, the pyramid, tribe, clan, sub-clan, lineage, sub-lineage, family, household, or whatever, however many levels there are, it may vary. Uh, the various segments are of roughly equal size. They balance each other. This is how order is maintained. Uh, and with the, the holy men, the Igoramen or the Marabtin, lubricating things. Uh, and that's, you could call that an equi- a, a theory, a sociological theory of political equilibrium. Um, and I'm saying that doesn't work for Kabilia. Um, rudimentary political parties, uh, you wanted rudimentary economic forms, uh, which... Um, Okay, the, uh, the, the system of <clears throat> land tenure is a system which uh, I was prevented by my publisher from going into as much detail. They said, no, 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 we don't want this, take it out. Uh, and, of course, one has to take some things out, so fair enough. They allowed me much more, uh, many more pages than they originally agreed to. Um, but uh, this is not a simple issue. Um, it's essentially, there are essentially three forms of landed property in Kabila traditionally. Uh, there's the territory of the tribe, Arsh. Uh, and within that, there would be, uh, each village would have its own specific part of that territory. Uh, the uh, orchards... Uh, of olives and figs and so on, the main, because uh, horti- uh, arboriculture is a major, a very important element of agricultural production in Kabilia, the other element being horticulture. Um, these are held as, uh, what the, in Kabilia they call it lemluk, it's, it's milk or milk. It's, uh, lemluk is the term, it's just a variation on the Arabic. It, this is a form of private property that one should not confuse with private property uh, typical of a modern capitalist economy. Because it's a, this private property is a variation on the common property of the Thadr. In other words, should a family become extinct because of some calamity, their land reverts, re- reverts to common property of the village, and the village then decides how to reallocate it. The other element of tenure, of land tenure in Kabilia, is uh, the uh, land that is uh, uh, commons. 
The term used is meshmo. And this refers to the, the woods, the forest, uh, watercourses. In other words, all this is available to all families. However, access to the meshmel is regulated by the jamaat because uh, particularly in pasture land, uh, there, there are rules about when you can access particular pastures. This is something that is regulated. So we have Arsh as the territory of the tribe, which is a condition of the existence of the particular common land of each village. The common land of the village is, if you like, the basic form uh, a variation of which is lemluk, but which can revert to common ownership in the event of the, of the proprietors uh, disappearing, which, of course, sometimes would happen. Proprietors, uh, in the event of a, of a major feud, a lineage might, be, uh, might decide to leave the village completely. That did happen. Its, its land would revert to the village. And then you have meshmel, the, the common uh, areas where the old women go to collect firewood. Uh, and where, the, uh, where the, the flock of sheep and goats are pastured and so on. Um, and my understanding, and this is not something I've looked at in the modern period at all, but my understanding from when I was spending time in Aethwavan in particular, was that these categories still operated. And one of the things that the independent state has signally failed to do is to get a grip on the whole issue of land tenure and the categories <laughs> organising land tenure in Algeria. There's a there's great deal of confusion about who owns what? Um, and this is something that, the, as I understand it, the Algerian state has not been able to get uh, control of. Does that answer your question? Michael is. <coughs> I'm sure we could hear. Thank you very much. Um, Michael Willis from Oxford University. Uh, thanks very much, Hugh, for a, for a great lecture. Um, if I can tempt you to comment on, on um, more recent history and politics again. I know a lot of people have. I'm, I'm just fascinated by this. Particularly the two aspects of um, post-independence or even perhaps earlier um, Algerian political traditions that are often attributed to the sort of um, history that you're talking about. Um, the two things in particular is this tendency which you referred to very briefly of, towards duality, this bifurcation. Um, you think in Kabylie itself, two main political parties, the RCD, the FFS, there are many other factions. If you look after what happened in 2001, this, this, this what seems to be a fairly pronounced tendency towards bifurcation. And also, a, a second tendency, this, un, this quite unusual um, hostility towards... Um, strong individual leadership that in Algeria really quite remar marks it out from the rest of the Arab world. Do you see these as linked into the sort of things you've been talking about? You can sort of draw a line if you wanted to backwards. Or do you see these as really unconnected and the products of, of, of forces and things that happen much later? Thank you. Hmm, that's uh, quite a lot of spin on that ball there, Michael. Um, on the, the dualism bifurcation thing, I don't buy... Bourdieu's thing about the, the dualistic psychology of the Kabyles. I think he's, he's sort of running away and getting lost with something there. Um, but uh, clearly um, there's been a... I think the, the tradition of, of Saf politics in Kabylia is enormously important. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, I, I go into a good deal of detail about this in the book. Uh, my understanding of the logics of uh, <coughs> soft politics 
in the period uh, in the uh, 17th and 18th centuries. I spend a lot of time on it, uh, and uh, I offer explanations of it. And I believe that uh, it's so important that, in a way, that is an, uh, part of the Kabyle tradition, and that it's one of the reasons for Kabyle restiveness and then uh, dissidence uh, in relation to the regime of the of the single party, so-called. As we all know, the, the party of the FLN really wasn't a party. It was a facade. It wasn't in power. It was, um, it was a facade for those in power. Um, but it was intensely irksome to Kabyle society because they were used in their own tradition to uh, having open political disagreement and competition even in the, the pre-colonial period. I think it's an important fact about Kabyle. Um, and so you can understand that as soon as the regime introduces this new constitution with Article 40, I think it was, saying uh, association d'un caractère politique, a very ginger sort of, a very sort of... Um, gingerly permitting political pluralism it's inevitable that Kabila will produce more than one party and that it will, it will produce alternatives to the FLN but more than one I think it's kind of it, it's, it, it's inevitable that that will happen uh, but the problem is that um, just as the FFS was an offshoot of the FLN the RCD was an offshoot of the FFS um, and um, the degree of political invention involved arguably has proved insufficient. Um, does that satisfy part of your thing? On the other, the, the question of um, legalitarianism, the hostility to strong leaders, I, that's also very much part of the Kabyle tradition in that the, in the uh, political organization of pre-colonial Kabylia and in villages right up until now, uh, the man who presides the Thajmath, the Amin, is not the village boss. He doesn't call the shots. He simply presides. He's a respected man in the village. He's, Amin means the person in whom trust is placed. Uh, he is not someone uh, able to dominate. His job is to uh, hold the ring, to chair the discussion, uh, and to um, uh, try to ensure that at the end of the day, however vigorous the arguments, uh, village unity is not uh, gravely impaired. The, the, the forceful characters in the Kabyle polity are the leaders of the Safuf. Uh, the head of the Saf, uh, Akarun Saf, is, uh, if you like, the person who is, the, is a uh, energetic and powerful figure rather than the person who presides, the Thajmath. Um, and I don't regard this as a peculiarly Kabyle thing. I think it's the logic of the Jama'a wherever you find the Jama'a. And you find the Jamar in, in uh, Arabophone mountain districts, and you find it amongst Arabophone uh, transhumant uh, tribes. So it's it's but it's something that uh, it's it is it seems to me a, a, a corollary of the tradition of the Jamar, um, not something that's peculiarly Kabyle. Hugh, thank you for finishing at such an excellently prompt moment to enable me to wind up before 8 o'clock. Um, I'm afraid there really isn't time for any more. Uh, I'm just going to back announce Hugh Roberts, who's come all the way from Boston to talk to us, and we're extremely grateful.